Sorry, he, he asked himself another question that many of us ask ourselves is who or what am I? Many people have asked that question. <coughs> Gotten a lot of different answers. <laughs> but one of the things I'll point out here, the, the Buddha's approach in all these things is to make the fewest possible assumptions. To always begin the pursuit of uh, the answer to any question by trying to, to recognize what the assumptions are that you start with and discard them. And just, uh, he's, he's described as uh, uh, the ultimate uh, pragmatist. You know, and so, okay, let's start with what I'm experiencing right now. And when you do that, if you approach this question in that way, you're going to say, well, I am conscious. It's, it's very similar to what Rene Descartes um, did, but Rene Descartes was not able to quite as thoroughly let go of his assumptions. And so he said, mm, I think, therefore I am. And the Buddha would say, well, wait, 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 wait a minute. What, are you <laughs> what you're telling me is that you're conscious of having a thought. So don't get carried away and say, I think, therefore I am. You're conscious of having a thought. Because you see, that, that mistake, that was what threw poor Rene off. Is, uh, he thought, well, I am real. Of course, he was predisposed to think that way because he was, he was a Christian and, and you know, believing in a, a soul, an eternal soul is an important part of that. So we can, we can excuse him. But the Buddha had no such limitations. So, okay, I am conscious. Wow, okay. Of that, I can be certain. Now, what I have to do is say, I'm not getting into what consciousness is. But subjectively, I'm conscious. As soon as I start getting into what consciousness is, well, uh, it's, it's going to get messy. We'll keep it simple. I'm conscious. Okay. <coughs> And um, in terms of what I am, I'm conscious of, the, of this moment, and uh, it seems to me that uh, I've been conscious a lot in the past. So not only am I conscious, but I, I seem to be an ongoing uh, pattern of repeated episodes of being conscious. Does that meet with your experience? Fit with your experience? Yeah, right. Now, in every instance of being conscious, I'm conscious of something. And when I think about it, do I come up with times that, well, I was conscious, but I wasn't conscious of anything? Well, not really. If I did, then maybe I could pursue the question of what is consciousness. But since I don't, I better pursue the question of what am I conscious of? since I'm always conscious of something. Which is the, that's the direction of the Buddha took. Okay. So my whole life has been a series of events in which conscious of this, conscious of that, conscious of the other thing. But what are these things that I'm conscious of? 
is objects of consciousness. Well, I'm conscious of seeing and visible objects. I'm conscious of hearing and sounds. I'm conscious of feeling and whatever it is I feel with my hands, sensations in my body, so on and so forth. I'm conscious of tasting and tasteable things. I'm conscious of, uh, of smelling and odors. Corresponding to the five the classic five senses. And then, of course, there's all those unconscious of... Uh, this, this was where René got ahead of himself, unconscious of thinking, conscious of thoughts, of ideas, of thinking. I'm, I'm conscious of memories. I'm conscious of mental images, of imagination. I'm conscious of... that my mind can generate fantasies and I can fantasize about things. I'm conscious of worrying, oh, what if so-and-so happens? I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of all kinds of mental objects, emotions. I'm conscious of being angry, conscious of being afraid, conscious of being lonely, conscious of being tired, all kinds of things. So, those all fall into six fairly neat categories. Five of them are the senses. One of them is all these things that are generated by the mind and known directly to the mind. Everybody agree with me so far? And, of course, five of those six, I can just lump them together. They have to do with materiality, physical things. So, I can say, alright, I'm conscious, I'm conscious of mind and matter. In terms of what I am, okay, I am consciousness of mind and consciousness of matter. Uh, I usually think of my body as part of myself, and my body is a material thing, so, okay, I'm conscious of mind and body. So I am mind and body, whatever they are. But now I have a handle on it. Since I know that I'm only conscious of these six different kinds of things, I can examine these six different kinds of things and see if I can get a little better grasp of what mind and body are. Make sense? When I examine what I actually know about material objects of any kind, the world of form in general, including my own body, I find only sensations. Anybody want to dispute that? That's all you find. So sensations? Thoughts are sensations then too. Thoughts are thoughts are a kind of sensation. Right now we're just looking at the material, okay. not the mental object. But uh, we we put all those mental objects in one group and say we know them directly in the mind, so we'll hypothesize something called the mind sense. So those are sensations <coughs> too. Here we're talking about physical sensations. So now, interesting thing, I, I know these material objects by means of my sense organs, which are part of my body, which is a material object. So when I said I am my mind and I am my body, now my body belongs to this category of material objects that I only experience as sensations. So let me correct my thinking here a little bit. I am not mind and body. 
I am, or I'm not consciousness of mind and consciousness of body. I am consciousness of mind and I am consciousness of sensations. So, I think I have a hand because I feel things coming from what I call my hand. But I have sensations that I label as hand sensations. And I can direct my eyes towards my hand and I can see my hand and I can smack my hand against my hypothetical knee and hear a sound so I can hear my hand. Sound, sound of one hand clapping, right? <laughs> so, so, my hand and really the rest of my body, uh, I, I, I don't, I, I've never known my hand. All I've known is the various sensations that lead me to believe I have a hand and that it looks and feels and everything else the way that it does. So, now I can say that not only am I this aggregate of conscious experiences, I'm also an aggregate of sensations. They're a subset of those conscious experiences. A subset of them is this aggregate of sensations. And that's really interesting because it means that the entire material world that I thought I knew so well, I realize now all I know are the sensations and so my mind makes a story up about these sensations that that says, okay, I'm walking out into the street, I'm opening my car door, I'm getting into this thing called a car and I'm driving to the store. But that's all a story my mind makes up because of a bunch of sensations already. And of course we could have a reference to the movie The Matrix and say, okay, computer jam a thing into the back of my head and the computer says, feel this, feel that, feel the other thing, and uh, what's his name? Neo. 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 So Neo, Neo experiences himself walking out into the street, taking his car keys out of his pocket, opening the door, firing it up, and driving down the street. But it's just because Neo had those sensations and his mind obligingly made up the story to match the sensations. So I realize my whole life has been like that. That's what makes the Matrix good is because it, it helps people to realize that, yes, indeed, you know, uh, you could be a brain in a jar with some mad scientist just <laughs> feeding the stimuli in and you would think you're walking on bars and flying through the air and doing all kinds of stuff. Now I know I've been doing that my whole life. So I am an aggregate of conscious experiences and a subset of those is sensations. And all the material objects, including my body, that I thought were out there, are actually a kind of mental object my mind has concocted to account for the sensations. So that particular mental object, the one I call body or car or all these other things, what those are, those are perceptions. And each of those perceptions is something created by my mind. Well, I was thinking about what you were saying last night and relating it to the words you're saying now and that knowing that it is a perception and we're talking about pain and that there will be pain but the suffering is optional. So when I have these sensations and I'm getting older and I get a disease or I'm in horrible, horrible pain, 
that if I were really developed, I would be able to know that and watch that, and I could, my body could die, as die, but I would, uh, you know, I would not, uh, um, but would not suffer, but what's there? <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to, I'm not being clear, so, quite like the difference between that perception and when things start really physical with your suffering and, or your pain, and taken to the ultimate because I believe you said there's always the veil, you know, even if you're very enlightened, that you have the body and the body will get old and die and suffer, I mean, have pain and illness. <coughs> I'm trying to get that connection that, what am I trying to say? That where, where, how does that fit where, not fit, but where, if that's so, I guess I would say, do you know you die? <laughs> That's what I'm asking. Do you, do you know you lie? If you die. Die. Do you know you die? I mean, if, I guess that's really what I'm asking. If you if you were that enlightened that, that you absolutely can identify this, mm -hmm. that... I, I, I think kind of turning up the steam on sensation, the more suffering, the more pain you would have, or perception of all these sensations. I didn't get the last part there. Well, I'm just, I'm just trying to equate these, the words of this, which I mean, I, you know, and applying it to, but I mean, you know, we are in these human bodies that have no self, and yet I'm going to have these... Okay. I, I think you're trying to jump ahead to the, to the end. To, until, we get through, until, until we go through all these other things, it will make more and more sense as we go along. You're, worried, you, you're, you're asking questions based on only partial, on, on, on partial information at this point. So please, let's do come back to that, but let's, let's go through all of the information first. Yes? I'm just sort of trying to figure out the Personal. I mean, it seems like it's saying that, like, no things actually exist. Is that what it's saying? Or is it saying what? No material things actually exist out there. <clears throat> okay. Now, this is this is something that I want to clarify. What it is saying is that all I know, all I can know, are sensations. Okay. And my mind says, oh, well, those sensations are due to. Uh, a cup. It, it makes. Uh, you see, I don't. I don't have any experience of this cup that I imagine that I'm holding in my imaginary hand. All I have is um, is shapes and colors okay. that my eye perceives, and sensations of warmth and pressure and stuff in my hands. The the cup. Whether a cup exists or not. I cannot discern directly. Okay. okay. At this point, there's the possibility that there really is a cup there, that's, and there really are hands there, and the cup is producing the sensations in my hand, and, and that my brain is, my mind is actually accurately making up a story about a cup, and there actually is a cup that corresponds to the story. 
But I don't know that. My brain could be floating around in a jar, or I could be in the matrix like Neo, mm -hmm. and something else could be producing those sensations. I cannot know where those sensations come from. Oh. Now, I'll tell you where a big... That's, I'm glad you brought that up. But what it's not saying is that nothing exists. It's not saying okay. that nothing exists. All right. And this was a mistake that was made in the past by people who were studying the Buddha's teaching. And they said, well, gee, you know, these sensations, when I dream, I have, I, I, I dream that I'm seeing things and feeling things. So maybe these sensations are not coming from somewhere else. Maybe these sensations are coming from my own mind. And so they jumped to the conclusion that nothing exists, or they, what they said is there's no reason to assume anything exists outside the mind. So they said, nothing exists outside the mind. They didn't like that idea. They were fond of this mm -hmm. thought that they had and said, my gosh, I think this is true. Nothing exists outside the mind. You know, it's all a figment of my imagination. And uh, they, they were called uh, the mind-only school. They believed it was all it was was mind. And therefore, all these sensations uh, are coming directly from my mind. So if I could learn to control my mind, uh, I could turn this cup into uh, anything I wanted. Right? I could live in any world I wanted, just like in my dreams. But what they were doing is they, they, had, they didn't understand these other things that we've already talked about. And um, these sensations... These sensations don't come from your mind. They come from outside your mind. And the reason we know that is in the dream, sensations that arise and pass away don't obey any consistent set of laws, of causal laws. And that's exactly how you know you're dreaming. When you, in your dream, you jump out of a third-story window and flap your arms and fly, that doesn't correspond to the laws of causality. But when you're awake and drop, jump out of a third-story window and flap your arms, you smack on the ground. And that happens every time, over and over again. And that event is consistent with everything that you've ever done. Every time you've dropped your teacup, every time you've seen anything else fall. You know, so the difference between dreams and sensations is that the sensations arise and pass away in strict accordance with laws of causality that you have discerned and are quite aware of. And so we can totally disregard the notion that your sensations come from your mind. Your perceptions are mental creations. They're the story. But the sensations that they're based on do not come from your mind. I mean, they could come from another mind. They could come from a computer. They could come from a Vulcan mind meld. They could come from somewhere else that is mind. <laughs> And you perceive it as matter because mind versus matter is one of the stories that your mind tells you to distinguish thoughts from, from sensations. But the thing that you know with absolute certainty, sensations do not come from your mind. They come from outside your mind. There is another reality beyond your personal mind. And that's important to grasp. So to say that material objects don't exist, well, the chances of them existing the way that I think they do are pretty slim. And as a matter of fact, if I pay attention to other people and 
Chris says, that's such a beautiful cup. I love that color of yellow. I think it reminds me of baby puke. <laughs> it just shows you that we all perceive things differently. As a matter of fact, we come up with a lot, more, lot better examples than that. We all perceive things quite differently because our perceptions are a creation of our mind. But the sensations that they're based on have a consistency. If you touch a hot stove and I touch a hot stove, we'll both feel the same sensations. So material objects do not exist the way we see them. But to say that the sensations that we base our stories on don't exist independently of the mind is just plain foolishness. Yes? So just to review, um, form is the raw sensation, and perception is the combination of sensations that your mind creates meaning out of. Exactly, yeah. Creates the, what, so for example, form would be yellow, hard, uh, this size, and whatever. That, that would be form, and perception would be cut. Um, Something like that? Yes, yes. Yes, and I, both are mediated by the mind, yeah, but they're not both right. from the mind. Yes, but okay. we'll say just a little bit about the sensations. Properly speaking, we should call them sense percepts. Because yellow, the yellow of the color that you see is actually created by your mind. The uh, What causes your mind to create the sensation, the sense percept of yellow, that's something from outside of your mind. You see, because, well, uh, if, if I could go inside your mind uh, and see this cup from your point of view, I might say, oh, that's the color I've always called red. You know, So I don't know that your mind produces the same sense percept but what I do know is that whatever produces the sense percept of yellow in my mind is the same thing that produces the sense percept of yellow in your mind. But yes, absolutely everything else you said, yes. Your mind puts together all these sensations and that perception you have. All these, all these things are perceptions. They're all mental constructs, mental formations. So there's actually, I don't want to call it the real... Uh, positive sense uh, perceptions, such as whatever those combination of colors that cause the rods and cones in our eyes to see color. Um, and then there's how each of us perceives them. Yeah, that's right. So in other yeah. words, there's senses, but then there's how you perceive those senses that's right. individually. Exactly. And then there's the aggregate of perceptions, which is another thing. Well, okay. What I would put in here is this. First of all, there is something that is the source of those sensations and those sense percepts. Let's call that ultimate reality. You can't know ultimate reality, but you have the sensations and your mind will make a sense percept, make sense percepts. So sense percepts are really, they're a kind of perception too. They're a very simple perception. And then your mind will put together shape and color and tactile sensations and stuff like that and come up with a more elaborate perception that we call perception of a cup. So perception of yellow 
and perception of cup. And those are all formed by your mind. In the Rupa category of the sensations, we might as well, uh, you know, we might as well put the sense percepts in that category because it, it's, we're getting, we, if we don't, we get too intellectual and we might confuse ourselves. And we don't want to do that. But then when we do get more intellectual and say, yes, but, then we have to say, okay, granted, Yellow is also a perception. Okay? So, I mean, we're creating these categories for the sake of their usefulness. But when we say form, are we talking about ultimate reality or are we talking about our perception? No, we are not talking, talking about When we talk about, remember form, the aggregate of form is part of me, who I am, the personal self, an individual. Okay? And form is my experience of the sensation. So form is my sense percepts. Ultimate reality is that unknowable thing that I am a part of, but that uh, is and that is the source of my sense percepts. Mm -hmm. Yes. I hope I can phrase this what I'm thinking. Um, our perception of the cup is actually our history because we've been taught. Yeah. that this is a cup, we've been taught this is yellow, and this holds stuff. But if you yeah. came from another planet, and you didn't have that history, you wouldn't have that perception. Which exactly. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. This is only a cup because of all the other cups you've met in your life. <laughs> <laughs> the next thing, that if I pursue this examination, so, okay, I... I'm an aggregate of conscious experiences. Some of those conscious experiences are sensations. Others of those conscious experiences are perceptions, the story my mind puts together to explain those sensations. And I notice that they're accompanied by feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, or, or neither. So some of my sensations are pleasant, and some are unpleasant, and some are neither. Some of my perceptions, the things that I perceive, are pleasant, they, they arouse in me the feeling of pleasantness. Others of my perceptions arouse in me the feeling of unpleasantness, undesirability, and then there's still others that I'm kind of neutral on. They don't make me feel much one way or the other. So I need to, I, I, I need to include the experience of these feelings as part of who or what I am. So we call that the aggregate of feelings. Um, so I was curious about uh, if, um, I guess, what, this is called hedon hedonic tone, right? Or uh, feeling, feeling tone. Um, yeah. If it's uh, at what level it emerges. Like, it doesn't seem to me like maybe blips of color would have pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. Like a, or like like uh, a blip of sound would have that. I'm, I, does it arise at the level of perception? or? Um, See, if you explore this in meditation, what you will find, or if you explore it in mindfulness in your daily life, but do it originally in med uh, meditation and it comes clear very quickly. A sensation arises and each sensation has associated with it the same hedonic quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then when your mind elaborates it into a perception, there's a second hedonic experience 
the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral associated with the perception. The two are different, and they can be opposite. The feelings that are being produced can be pleasant, but the perception that results can be of something unpleasant, or vice versa. The feelings can be unpleasant, but the perception can be pleasant or neutral, any combination of those. Because the feelings elicited by sensations are, are, are separate from the feelings elicited by our perceptions. Okay? And the feelings are produced by your mind. The feelings associated with sensations are pretty much hardwired in. Okay? Uh, stick, a, stick a thorn in your hand and it's going to be unpleasant, right? Whereas uh, a, a gentle touch is going to be pleasant. That's kind of, that's more or less hardwired in. But your perceptions are totally created, the, the feelings associated with your perceptions are created by your mind and can change what you perceive as pleasant on one occasion, you could perceive as unpleasant on another occasion. Okay? So it's an important thing to know about. Sensations are hardwired? What's that? That sensations are pretty much hardwired? They're, they're more or less hardwired. Not totally, because um, nobody's born hardwired with the, the perception that, uh, that purple is a wretched color. On the other hand, most people would probably find the combination of purple and yellow not quite as appealing. Right? But both of those are variable. You can, some people will love purple and other people won't really like purple. And uh, you can come to love purple and yellow, especially if you watch cartoon shows where the, the guys in the cartoons are purple with yellow spots. Or you could come to, to detest it. So like, the, the pretty much is an important thing. We're born with a predisposition. I mean, there's even some people, it's hard for me to imagine because I don't experience this way, but there's some people who um, uh, find what most people would consider a painful experience to, to certain kinds of pain to be pleasant. Wouldn't that be the perception? I think that might be the perception, but I, I don't know, since I can't get in the mind of these people. You know, so. that wouldn't that be perception? I think, you know, definitely in the case where something unpleasant, uh, a sensation that is inherently unpleasant, if you associate it with some pleasant thing, then, then you would have a perception that do that anticipation. That would be an elaboration in your mind. Wouldn't that maybe be uh, pain? Like unpleasant is already putting some kind of good, but in my perception, some kind of good, bad uh, label on it. Yeah. Unpleasant person, pleasant. So then, let's say a thorn in your hand causes some kind of pain. And, and that's that's one of the things that we set out to change is we want our minds no longer, even though even though the thorn produces an unpleasant sensation, <coughs> what we want to do is get to the place where we don't need to have a strong mental reaction of unpleasantness in response to that. Yeah. Um, 
Exactly. Okay, I see where you're going. I agree totally. The last of these is just, it's a summing up of what's left over. Okay? So I've reflected on this collection of conscious experiences, some are sensations, some are mental objects. Uh, 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 so other mental objects, feelings and perceptions are mental objects, right? In addition to that, there's thoughts and memories and emotions, there's all kinds of other mental objects. So we'll put this, and they're created by the mind, they're mental constructs, they're mental formations. So they belong in this last kind of grab bag category. All these different mental objects. But when I think about it, there are, there's something else, other kinds of mental formations, that don't necessarily become the objects of consciousness, but they're definitely there. I know by inference they're there, by observing myself even if I don't experience them directly. They operate in the background. They manifest externally as loves and hates, desires and aversions, worries, hopes, fears, and especially as the intentions that, uh, that drive my behavior. Some intentions I'm conscious of, other intentions I'm not conscious of. But I know, whether I'm conscious of them or not, I know that there is some kind of mental activity, a mental construct that I call an intention that is driving my behavior. An intention is a, an impulse towards a particular activity to achieve a particular end. And so whether I am conscious of, of them or not, not just everything I think and not just everything that I say and do, but also everything that I think, and even the emotions that I feel, are being driven by intentions that I may not be conscious of. Your thoughts and your emotions have that kind of purpose. They're movements of the mind. They're a kind of activity that is directed towards a particular goal. So all of these other things, the Buddha lumped together as mental formations. Perceptions are also mental formations. Feelings are mental formations. And he separated those out from the rest of these. Because in you, when you do this kind of self-analysis, they do stand out. But this recognizes the presence of all of the rest of them. So a very important part of who I am is this other great collection of uh, mental formations. So what I want to ask you here is if you follow this, is there anything about you as an individual person that's not accounted for here? saying here is these <coughs> other mental formations operating in the background. When they are in the background, that's when you're not conscious of them. That's what I meant by background. So these mental formations, some of them are unconscious and some of them are conscious. Yes? What about the, uh, the social self? Uh, 
the way that everyone else sees you, your, your roles and relations? Well, what I would say to that is what, the way somebody else sees you is their perception of you. It's a perception that exists in their mind. It's not really a part of you, but you, but it can be a part of your ego construct. You, you can want people to see you in a particular way. You can deliberately try to manipulate other people's perceptions so that they'll see you in a particular way. And so you can have the experience of, well, everybody thinks I'm this, but in my heart, I really don't. I'm not. Right? So what you are is what you know yourself, not, not what you've made somebody else appear. Uh, made, made yourself appear to be to somebody else. Does that make sense? Because other people's perceptions of you, in many cases, you don't know them at all. You often misunderstand them. Ever met somebody who goes to a lot of trouble to appear to be one thing, and everybody just thinks they're pretentious? Yeah. <laughs> but it just seems like um, your outward behaviors and everything should matter in who you are. It seems that. Uh, separating yourself from the rest of reality. Well, the, the idea here is that your outward behavior is a result of this last category of mental formations. And your outward, outward behavior is an expression of your perceptions and your desires and your aversions and what you hope to achieve. I guess it just kind of blurs for me. It blurs for you? Well. Well, there is a sense in which we are not really separate. You are who you think you are, and I am who I think I am. But you are also what I think you are, and you are also what everybody else thinks you are. But we're not talking about that aspect. Here we're talking about the person that you perceive yourself to be. We are all interconnected, and I think we all have had the experience of times of we think we're one thing, and we discover that everybody else thinks we're something different, and um, once we know that, sometimes we have to agree, yeah, I wasn't what I thought I was, I'm something different. Yeah. Your question was about like anything about you at all that isn't covered here? Like In these five aggregates. What about the physical? The physical is covered by the aggregate of uh, uh, form. Uh oh. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That, is, that is your body. Okay. Your body is really just the sensations and the story of mind makes about the sensations. So is this sort of a, are these five aggregates sort of a remedial phase before you actually understand that you're not separate from everything else? That you tend to perceive yourself in these forms? Well, these, these are, I'd rather put it that these are what you really are. This is what a person, what an individual person really is. We imagine ourselves to be something other than this, but this is what we really are if we examine it closely. The nature of an individual person is these five aggregates. And I just organize them here. There's form, that's the sensations coming in. 
consciousness that's that sort of sits on top of everything that so you're conscious of oops you're conscious of sensations you're conscious of perceptions you're conscious of feelings you're conscious of thoughts and memories and emotions and so forth so taken together as a whole these five aggregates fully account for me as an individual person mind and body a psychophysical entity active in the world so it includes all of my activities in the world okay within them i can find nothing that i can claim as i me or mine i have no power over these five aggregates that i am in all of this there is nothing to cling to as self in other words this is the nature of me as an individual person i am these five aggregates Now, but I am unique. I am unique from uh, uniquely different than every other collection of aggregates. <coughs> These five aggregates do exist, but they're just that. They're a collection. So I'm unique and I'm special, but there's no self in this. It's just it's just a heap of consequences of causes and conditions uh, all of these all of these things in 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 these five heaps they're just they're just effects produced by the coming together of causes and conditions which we've already seen are all part of a much greater whole I I stumbled over the last part of the last paragraph on page 7 which says taken together the whole these five aggregates fully account for me on page 7 mm-hmm. they are impermanent and cannot be clung to uh, owned or in any sense controlled I stumbled over that controlled part maybe I'm laboring under an illusion that part of my job is to become more and more consciously responsible for the state of my consciousness and that is your job i i didn't say that you can't influence or you can influence the direction of the evolution of the this is all process right okay yeah and the process can direct its own evolution um, okay so there's not a contradiction there's not a contradiction okay. here. what i'm saying is that you can't you can't control any of these aggregates they they just they are what they are they are what they are because of causes and conditions many of those causes and conditions are internal and this is where this is where karma comes in who you will right now you are these five aggregates you don't have control over that because it's determined by the past who you will be tomorrow you can influence today okay because you are you are creating yourself you are a self-creating process and you're creating your future self and in the it's an interesting thing you have far more influence over the kind of person you will be in 10 years than you do over the kind of person that you will be tomorrow and you have almost no influence at all over the kind of person you're going to be a moment from now because 
food. You make little tiny changes moment by moment. When you understand the direction you want to go, when you understand the kind of person you want to be, then you make little tiny changes moment by moment. And each of these little changes you make expands and it flowers. So the changes you make now in, in this moment, they'll, they'll be a little bud tomorrow. And, and uh, you know, ten years from now, they'll, they'll be fully flowered. Yeah. You know, I've asked before, how fast is the present moment? Okay. And what what you, what you, that discussion was was about the present moment. And I think that if you really get into seeing where you are in the present moment, that you can accelerate that change so that the little yes. bitty pieces, instead of spreading out over 10 years, can reduce a whole lot. Mm -hmm. That's right, because each one is... This is where intention comes in. Intention is about how you'd like the things to be in the future. It, because the only reason we have intentions is because we have this capacity to project into the future and say, well, I'd rather... That be this way in the future rather than that way. And so you do things that are directed to making it be this way rather than that way. And the same thing with yourself. When you begin to understand that who I am in the future is the result of what I do, then you start generating intentions that will mold and shape you. Now, if, if for a very, uh, only a very brief period of time do I hold those intentions, then uh, they're not going to have nearly as much impact as if I hold those intentions repeatedly in more and more present moments as they unfold. And whether or not I do that is all going to come from how well I understand. If I, if I understand that I have the capacity to make myself uh, a, a, a wise and happy being who is free from suffering, if I truly understand that, then I'm going to hold those intentions really consistently and I'm going to get there very quickly. I can become a Buddha uh, in as little as seven days. According to the Buddha, inside of Patana Sutra, he said, it can only take seven days. He said, but even if you're sloppy, you should be able to do it in seven years. That's what he says. <laughs> it's all about how well you really understand and really believe that you have this power. Because after all, you have a good intention now, but then you have a bad intention in a moment from now that cancels it out. It's all for nothing. Okay. So that's the five aggregates. It's a rather amazing thing I, I always thought. Often underappreciated. Now, I'll just emphasize here something. We're going to look at the three characteristics. And one thing that may cause, that often causes consternation to people if they really do understand what the Buddha is saying when he says that I am these five aggregates and nothing more and there is no self in this, is nobody brought it up 
that somebody may be thinking, well, what about my soul? And we didn't get there yet, but if you're willing to give up this idea of your separate soul, you're going to get to a place that is far, far better. But if you're attached to your separate soul, you're going to have a lot of trouble with this. And so I'm asking you to at least stay open to the possibility that I may actually be better off not having a soul. Let me at least pursue the thinking to find out whether or not this is true. So, yes? I, I think it also depends on your definition of what soul is. It does, yeah. And to me, it, it's not... My definition doesn't so much emphasize the individuality as the in, that which connects me to everything, to the ones. Yeah. Well, in that case, that's a definition that, that that is a very workable definition. And there are what you find what you find in the religious traditions that firmly posit a soul, like Christianity and, and Judaism. Probably Islam. I, I don't know Islam that well, but in both Judaism and Christianity, there is, at, at the more sophisticated levels of understanding, a recognition of how problematic that this separate soul is. And that, as a matter of fact, that kind of definite reality of the, sef- of the separate soul stands in the way of achieving the actual goal of these religions, which is to ultimately achieve a union with God. And so what they do is they end up having to redefine the soul so that that the soul is actually... It's done in different ways, but often it comes to be the soul is the part of me that was the divine reality right from the beginning. You know? And so in that sense it stops being a separate thing that belongs to me and is the subject of all this suffering anyway. This is where we're trying to get to. Yeah. Um, I think maybe for me part of the confusion would be the consciousness aggregate. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not that is because I tend to think of that as different. Like what you know, Stephen might be conscious of right now might is different than what I might be conscious of right now. And how do you account for that? Then I get confused. That different people are conscious of different things. And you are conscious of different things in different moments. See, that's the nature of consciousness. And and that's why in this, we're not really talking about consciousness. We're talking about the aggregate of conscious experiences. Mm -hmm. What you, as as an individual person, are is an aggregate of specific conscious experiences. Consciousness itself, which we which we don't look at in this, the consciousness itself is only differentiated by its object. And so consciousness is actually a universal property. But at least in terms of people, everybody in this room is conscious. Everybody in this room is conscious of different things. And the consciousness itself is no part of what differentiates us from each other. It's the objects of consciousness that individualize us. I mean, I think that's what I think maybe causes the idea of soul, I think is what I was trying to say before. Well, okay, but 
and it is. People try to do that, but they run into exactly the same problem. They say, okay, my consciousness is my soul. Consciousness is, is, is. But then, when they try to make that personal, that, that's, that's when it, it, it collapses. Because uh, consciousness isn't personal. I mean, consciousness exists. When you say, I am conscious of something, there's the thing that I'm conscious of, and then there's consciousness. But what individuates the consciousness is the object. There are not multiple consciousnesses. There is only one consciousness, and we all share in it. You said what individuates the consciousness? What individuates a particular conscious experience is its object. Consciousness itself, there is no separateness in consciousness itself. So there can be no separate soul. There can't be my soul and your soul can't be. That would mean it'd be two different consciousnesses, and there aren't two different consciousnesses. There's that set of consciousnesses of, and this set of consciousnesses of. And what makes that set different from this set is what we're conscious of, not the consciousness itself. Consciousness does not have that property of individuation. I guess what I'm confused about is how it gets divided into your consciousness of and my consciousness of. Does that make any sense? I guess that's probably a much further question, maybe. Like why the consciousness? Why Why all the consciousness ofs don't include each other or something like that? Why why are they divided into all these different heaps? (laughs) Okay, well, let's put it another way. Let's say, okay, since they are divided into all these different heaps, I think this is the same question, but turning around another way. We'll ask ourselves, uh, okay, so they're divided into all these separate heaps, but is it possible that that division could disappear? Is that the same question? Turned around? It implies a different answer. It's the same question, but it implies a different answer. The answer being, yes, it is possible. There is, it is not necessary that consciousness be isolated, that you cannot know what, you, you cannot share in uh, another being's consciousness of. Okay? Because that, in fact, is one of the things that happens when, when, you, when your self-individuating mind acquires a certain degree of wisdom, it begins to let go of the barriers. And as it lets go of the barriers, consciousness, which is a, pure, a single, pure, and universal principle, begins to have the kind of access to all the objects of consciousness, which in a sense was its own right the entire time. Mm-hmm. Put it another way. Yeah. The illusion that you can't be consciousness of conscious of, of everything is just that, an illusion. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I come from that uh, uh, base of idea, but then I start to get confused when what you said, like that it comes from the object, that the what determines its individuation is it object. How is that? Or well, does everybody else get that? Okay. Well, so you, you, I, I know exactly what you're saying. Your mind creates the object, and your mind creates its own separateness. This is what we're, this, as we go along here, we're going to talk about exactly that, that the mind projects thingness on something 
this is ultimate reality in its totality. Your mind projects the little boundary that separates one part off from another and makes it an object. Your mind creates a thought by isolating it from the whole. It creates a sensation by isolating it from the whole. But the heaps are in the are I almost said separate. <laughs> I have a uh, right? The heaps are kind of uh, The heaps are separate, but they're only separate because the mind makes them separate. Right. Oh boy. Um, mm. sorry. Okay. Sorry, no, 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 no. This is this is good. It's really clear. Ultimate reality involves no separation. All separation is imposed by the mind. Okay, so in ultimate reality, the heaps aren't separate. In ultimate reality, the heaps are not separate. But in you, in your perception of yourself as an individual person, your mind is making them separate. And as a matter of fact, in, in my mind's perception of you as separate, it's my mind that's making you separate. So from each, each, all separation exists only within a mind. If I were to try to explain that to one of my children, they would, they would, they would do lots of things, but believe me, okay? They, there's, it's like how, how do you, if you're not here, or if you're not interested, if you're not following a practice, how do you discover that? How do you discover this? You, it's... I mean, lots of people suffer and never discover why they're suffering. Exactly, yeah. I thought when I mentioned the separation, maybe it's good for children. <laughs> the teacher. It's like raindrops. You know, we might all be here, but we're one water. Yes. It's, I'd use an even better example. You can, you can take a body of water and you can make a little cube out of wire and you drop your little cube in and, and where it hangs, okay, I've made that water separate from the rest. It's, it, there is a cube of water and I can move it over a little bit and I have a new cube of water. It contains some of the same water as the last cube and some different water. Wherever I move my little wire cube around, I have a cube of water. But it's all the same water. It's, an, it's a distinction that's created by my little wire cube. It's a distinction that's created by your mind. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the, the nature of the individual, of an individual person, um, the five aggregates, maybe one thing would ask, is there anything missing that people can see? The, the fact of where we put that wire in the water, yeah. just that is based on our karma on, or, or how we're perceiving, how we're perceiving of the objects, how um, is there's that, that other underlying which is maybe the base on, on even just dividing things, it, basically, and then furthermore the individual characteristics of all those subdivisions. It, 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 yes, where you put the water cube in the water, how it moved, and how it could be subdivided, all of this is a result of causes and conditions. It's all inherent within the whole. So, so karma and causes and conditions are inherent in each of the five aggregates, and so we don't need to list it as another part of the self. 
That's right. Yeah, karma is one kind of cause causality. Okay. It's one kind of causality, right? So would we would we need to put all the different causalities, even though that might be impossible, um, to, in order to define the nature of the individual person? Well, there is a there is, we could define the individual person from the point of view of causality, and. There is, there is physical causality, so there's the physics and chemistry. There's the biological causality, there's the DNA and, the, and everything that makes an individual person have the certain characteristics they do. There is the psychological causality, which is a person with that particular mind is going to behave uh, in the way that's dictated by the structure of their mind. Each, each of us is different psychologically, so the psychological causality. Then there's karmic causality. And karmic causality, that's how we form ourselves. So, in this moment, you are the result of uh, physics and chemistry, biology, the laws of psychology that govern the way your mind works, and how you have created yourself through your past actions and intentions. Okay? So these, all of these different causalities have determined your uniqueness in this moment. Would it be possible if, we went, if, if we're going to believe that there are past lives, and if we're going to we take that as a truth, and um, then all of the different behaviors that we've exhibited throughout the infinite lives, wouldn't those actually, could, could we prove that those had to do with what psychological characteristics we have, what physical characteristics we have in this particular um, time, or would there be some other... Experience? Okay, in, interesting question. The, mm -hmm. Now, the thing is, that if we go back to dependent arising, we see that what you are in this moment is ultimately the result of absolutely everything that's ever happened. So, your past lives, are, the, the past lives that have formed you are the, the past lives of every sentient being that's ever existed. Okay? And that's absolutely true. Where we end up getting on thin ice and making a mess of things is we try to say, well, no, actually what I am is a result of this one particular being that lived in the past. And that's not the case. You're the result of, you, you, you are the karmic product of every sentient being that's lived in the past. So, if you want to re review your past lives, you have to review every past <laughs> life. Because they're all yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's question. Yes. Is the universe infinite and eternal? What's that? Is the universe infinite and eternal? And eternal. Well, um, depends on what you mean by the universe. Uh, but what we can what we can surmise about ultimate reality is that it's infinite and eternal. So. Therefore we are. And therefore we are too. Although just knowing that doesn't help us much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's always the, the there's always that little thing about, well, I'm going to remember that. You know, I'm, that's going to be, I'm going to, base my future based on my past lives. Yeah. There's always that little thing that goes in there with that kind of... Right. Yeah. And 
And I've not heard you say yes or no to that. To, to the, the, the remembering that? Is no. Yeah. Well, yes, but the 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 the, the reincarnation thing that says uh, which is a common popular belief. About, popular belief. Yes. Yeah. That that there is a carryover. Right. That there is, there is something unique and non-physical that survives the dissolution of the body and persists in another being and is the same unique uh, thing. But as we'll see as we keep going with it, that that's not that's not the good thing that that. People assume that it is. If, if that were true, it's terrible, but it's not true. Um, let's go back to past lives. Why would anybody? Why would anybody want to know what? If they had, if, if reincarnation was true, why would anybody want to know their past lives? And part of it might be it would make them. It makes them feel better about things because they say, okay, well, I understand now why this is the way it is. They might learn from it. And they might say, oh, well, seeing how this produces th these kind of results, then I'll behave differently. Okay? And what I'm saying is you can get both of those things from understanding all of your past lives, not just selecting one out and say, that's the real me and the rest aren't. You don't need to have this linear sequence of separate individuals, which you aren't even in this real, in, in this life. You're not even the, the same person that you've been throughout your entire life. But you somehow imagine there's something about you that is more sane than these five aggregates. Because you can see these five aggregates are just constantly changing. And so you're saying, so, so if you believe in reincarnation, you want to say, Okay, there's something else, and it stays more sane than any of these <laughs> things do, and it'll carry over into my next life. And it's just you don't need that. It's, it doesn't doesn't serve any purpose. The Buddha did say that he saw past lives. He didn't say they were his past lives. He said he viewed uh, huge numbers of past lives, and. If he did that, if you did that, if anyone did that, you would learn enormously from it. We do something similar if you read biographies and autobiographies, or for that matter if you read novels, or if you go to movies. In all of those, they're all opportunities to make sense of things and to learn from them. And that's really all that you would do if, if you were reincarnated and you viewed your own series of past lives, that's all you would do is learn from it in the same way that you learn from going to movies or reading biographies. And if I say to you that every sentient being that's ever lived in the past is you, then that just gives you more past lives to draw on. I don't want to let this opportunity slip by. Yeah. Okay. We have movie night here. Every <laughs> <laughs> so. And there's popcorn. 
if you if you if you are not yet at the stage of meditation where you experience past lives regularly, then come to movie nights and that's best thing. When is it? <laughs> it's it's uh, we just we just had the last movie night what, a couple weeks ago. Okay. No, Friday, it's on Friday nights. Okay. It's on, Friday night some, when it fits into the Kubasa schedule. Some Friday night in May, probably. Yeah. <laughs> and we haven't determined the movie night for May. Well, it's also a hot watch, by the way, so there's community building going on at the mm -hmm. same time. What time? It usually starts at 6. We'll do one, one last quick question, and then what we're going to do since we've agitated our minds sufficiently is meditate till lunch. Okay. All right. Um, Someone else. Okay. Um, one thing I'm finding logically, um, not not the whole thing of you can affect ten years from now more than two weeks, more than next moment, virtually impossible. You can affect next life, and referring back to um, this gentleman's. Uh, question before about then nihilism or you know there's no point. Um, my understanding um, um, however immature it is, which you know, is um, is that with proper intention, motivation, um, uh, hopefully for larger, more beautiful things for more than just oneself. You are creating, planting those seeds that, um, to create that. And then, if, so if we were to say that, you know, um, there is not something that is, whether it be constantly changing and not the same thing, mm -hmm. um, that is going on some kind of trajectory that can be um, directed, um, and that and as opposed to there is no trajectory that one can help um, point um, that isn't totally affected by, you know, I perceive some people committing war crimes right mm -hmm. now. So if that war crime is going to equally affect, like, you know, how much, um, and I understand these terms like up and down and higher and lower, they probably fall away. But I'm just going to use it. Go towards enlightenment, move up the path, move forward. If there isn't some kind of individual thing that does that, then how can how can a Buddha come up? You know, then it would feel like everybody together has to become enlightened at the same moment. And maybe when you're Buddha, you realize everyone is enlightened. I don't know, but uh, so. You know, you get what I'm saying? Talking about being able to, therefore, it would make, mean that, yes, some past lives are maybe more important or instrumental or directing or culminating mm -hmm. for all the different causes and conditions. They are more important for, in terms of a path or, mm -hmm. or progressing on a path. What, what we're saying is that you don't have to be a separate self in order for there to be that direction and for there, for there to be those results. And and that's really all, all, all that we're saying at this point. But it, as, as we go along, hopefully the rest of it will become clear what the alternative is. But the alternative to 
you not being the separate self that you that you think of yourself as is is it doesn't remove or deny these other things that you see as being the other good consequences that you attribute to separate selfhood are really not dependent upon separate selfhood. Rather, what depends upon separate selfhood are the conditions of suffering that you that we don't need. So, I'm hoping maybe right after lunch when we talk about uh, the three characteristics and no self, that will become uh, still clearer. But just simply, self is about separation. And separation contributes nothing. So, once we remove separation and separateness from the picture, then there's a lot of good things become possible that, that separateness limits us. Why does separation exist? What's that? If it attributes for nothing, why does it exist? Well, let's put it this way. The reason that we have minds, that we're born uh, in a form that we have a mind, that creates separation, is because that's, that's that's how the world works. That's how, you know, we see ourselves as, well... Let's move back a notch. Let's say living organisms perceive themselves as separate and they're compelled by desire and aversion so that they'll get what they need to survive and they'll get a mate and they'll produce offspring. And in the case of organisms that care for their offspring, like we do, it'll also ensure the survival of our offspring. So we have evolved minds that see ourselves as separate because it contributes to that process being successful. If you remove this sense of separateness from cats and dogs and horses and pigs, they probably wouldn't survive very well. Humans don't need it. Okay? It was, in itself, separateness, it's a part of ultimate reality because it works. It's a part of a causal process that works. Life would not exist on this planet if one little droplet of the primordial ocean hadn't separated itself from the rest by a membrane and became the first self. And everything else, what, what we are, the beings we are today, that no longer need to be driven by the perception of separateness, owe our existence to that initial separateness. So then, through enlightenment and consciousness, we can stop being... We can stop being... The humans that we are. The, the separate humans. That, that's right. We can stop being the separate humans that we are. We can be a completely new kind of human. A non-separate human. That's what the Buddha was. And that's what all all the Buddhas since him, him have been. Okay? And that's what we want to become. This new kind of not-separate human. Because we look at the world and we see what a mess, separate, greedy, hateful humans have made us things. <laughs> Material and biological evolution has taken us as far as it can. And so it's us, up to us to carry forward in the next step of spiritual evolution 
If we fail in that, well, material and biological evolution will take over again and we'll be replaced by someone else who hopefully can do a better job than us. I, I think that the ultimate destiny of uh, the world is that everybody becomes completely enlightened. Well, some people try to escape it by committing suicide. But and if you were a separate self, then committing suicide might be a way of escaping. And but you lose the opportunity of enlightenment. But you lose the opportunity of enlightenment. Yeah, you lose the... Because suicide, suicide is based on believing that you are a separate self, trying to destroy that separate self. And as a matter of fact, that was the spiritual goal of most uh, religious teachers in the time of the Buddha, was to find a way to annihilate the separate self. 